I'll ask you to take your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 2. We are in verse 24. If you are visiting, I will tell you that last week, the great king of Babylon, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream. We didn't have it last week, but we read about it last week. And in the text, he is very troubled by this dream. Um, It is not a normal dream. It is not a silly dream. It is, uh, all indications are, a recurring dream. It is causing his sleep to depart from him. Because of that, he infers correctly that it is from God and it must have a meaning. He wants the meeting. He calls on all of his wise men who are these, uh, basically a who's who of the Babylonian occult. Magicians, astrologers, uh, people that dabble in, in, in dark spiritual, quasi-spiritual things. And he says, tell me the interpretation of the dream. They say, no problem, tell us what the dream was, we'll tell you what it means. He says, well, there is a a problem, I don't trust you guys. So, uh, first tell me what my dream is, and then I'll know that whatever interpretation you give me is legitimate. And they can't do that, they panic. Uh, He sends out the order to execute the wise men of Babylon, who've basically been freeloaders in the kingdom for a long period of time, pretending to have communication with the gods, when they are now confessing that uh, the gods don't dwell with men and they don't know what the dream is and they can't give the interpretation. So the command goes out. They show up to Daniel who is either in the middle of his three-year training program or has just completed it. Um, Had no idea about the dream or Nebuchadnezzar what's going on. Has not worked himself up the totem pole of the Babylonian occult. Um, And we don't have any indication that Daniel would have been very good at working himself up the totem pole of the Babylonian cult to begin with. So uh, they come to him, he says, well, hold on, let us petition our God. They pray, Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pray with Belteshazzar, with Daniel. God gives them revelation of the dream, specifically to Daniel. Daniel takes it before the king, and that brings us to Daniel chapter 2, verse 24. Let's read. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Again, Belteshazzar was his Babylonian name. Daniel was his Hebrew name. The king says, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king... 
and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Well, today is the day. We're going to go through the interpretation of this dream. We have some slides to help us. Hopefully you can see all of those. Last time we did some slides, we had some technical difficulties, but Josh is on point today. I'm sure he's going to do fantastic. And actually, I think I was the one that messed it up for him last time, so sorry about that. Uh, Three parts to this morning's sermon. Part one, the Bible and our God. That's part one. Part two, the interpretation of this dream. And part three, the God of the Gentiles. So let's dive into part one, the Bible and our God. At this point in the book of Daniel, it is time for us to own up to what we believe. You're sitting there this morning, you've got to own up to what you believe. Because from here on out, there is so much clear prophecy that you cannot skirt the question, is this the word of God? You can't do that any longer. When I say clear prophecy... What I mean is Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C. during the Babylonian Empire. Jesus in the New Testament authenticates the book. He says that Daniel was a real person from the 6th century B.C. who was a prophet and wrote the book. Now Daniel, through these dreams and visions, is going to paint a picture of the future that stretches out hundreds of years ahead. And because we live 2,600 years after the book of Daniel was written, we are confronted with a real challenge. You see, what Daniel says is going to happen, happens in increasingly striking detail. And from our perspective, 2,600 years later, we see that it happens. We call it history. And yet Daniel is proclaiming it as the future, as prophecy from God. Oh, when we're done with chapter 2 today, and we will be done with chapter 2 today, you could say, well, he said that these things in this dream represent some of these things over here. And maybe they do, maybe they don't. I could see it. But when we're done with the book of Daniel by chapter 12, there's no longer anything left to the imagination. Most of the prophetic word has historically been fulfilled already. So, Daniel describes in this book the Persian Empire, which will follow the Babylonians, the Greek Empire, which will follow the Persians, and the Roman Empire, which will follow the Greeks. He describes in detail throughout the entire book those great empires of the world. Now, for hundreds of years following the book of Daniel's authorship in the 6th century B.C., Daniel was in circulation in the Hebrew Scriptures and no one questioned it. Why would you? It's prophecy. They had prophets. They had prophetical books. No one had a problem. They knew when it was written. They knew who wrote it. But when Christianity began to rise to prominence in the Roman Empire, critics of Christianity among the Romans started to arise. They didn't want this new faith to have a prominent place in their society. This is the first inkling of attacks that we see on the Bible. And, of course, if you're going to attack the Bible, you have to attack the book of Daniel. Because the book of Daniel speaks so clearly to the future from a 6th century B.C. position, a critic of the Bible has to attack Daniel. It's not an option. You cannot leave it alone. You can't say, I don't believe the Bible and not have anything to say about Daniel. You have to deal with it. If you don't believe in the God of the Bible, you have to attack Daniel. You can't leave it alone because if left alone, you're forced to deal with so much already fulfilled prophecy, it reads in some places just like history. So, critics began to attack Daniel after Jesus rose from the grave. Not immediately, but within a hundred years, 
because Christianity started to spread throughout the Roman Empire. And they understood that the book of Daniel was clearly saying prophetic things that had been fulfilled. They didn't attack the book of Daniel before Jesus. The 600 years leading up to Jesus, we don't have any historical text on Daniel, but after Jesus rose from the grave. Not because there was a good reason to attack the book of Daniel, not because there was any reason textually or historically to believe that Daniel wasn't written in the 6th century BC, but because they have to attack it or else they have to acknowledge the God of Israel who knew the future and declared it through this prophet. Now, let me be clear again. There is no evidence archaeologically, historically, to dispute that the book of Daniel was written in the 6th century BC. None. Nevertheless, critics believe that the book of Daniel was written in the 2nd century B.C., which means 400 years later. B.C., we count down, not up, right? They say it was written in the 2nd century B.C. About 200 years before Jesus was born, 400 years after the Babylonian Empire when Daniel proclaims to have written it. Now, why do they believe that it was written in the 2nd century B.C.? Why that time? Why do they date the book in the 2nd century instead of the 6th? The answer is twofold and very simple. Number one, they can't date it any later than that. If they could, they would. They can't date it any later than the 2nd century. They can't say it was 1st century. They can't say it was 1st century AD or 2nd century AD. They can't do that because by those dates, by the 2nd century on, we see the book of Daniel in wide circulation in manuscripts that we still have. So they can't go any later. If they could go later, they would. But they can't go any later than that. It was definitely written by the 2nd century B.C. That's what they're conceding. Definitely, definitely written by then. But the second reason they dated the 2nd century B.C. is because by that time, a lot of the events of Daniel, specifically as it pertains to the Greek empire that he's prophesying about, have been fulfilled. And they don't believe Daniel can speak prophecy. So if those things have been fulfilled by the 2nd century, he must have written them in the 2nd century or later, and it can't be later because we have the book in wide circulation later, so it's got to be in the 2nd century. That's why they date it there. There is no archaeological evidence of that or textual evidence of that. It is purely because if you date it earlier than the 2nd century, you've got legitimately fulfilled prophecy from God that there's no way any man could have known. And you can't go any later because the evidence becomes monumental against you. No good reason for it. No reason to think that in the 2nd century B.C. someone is merely pretending to be the character of Daniel, pretending to tell the future, except if a person has decided in their heart they are not going to believe the God of the Bible, and that is the only good reason to doubt it. In fact, there is every good reason because of the historical details about Babylon, Israel, Persia, to believe that this book is exactly as old as it says that it is. And archaeology has confirmed much of what this book says. Exactly as old as everyone believed it to be until Christianity became a problem for the Roman Empire. And then it couldn't be that old anymore. Critics cannot allow for a 6th century B.C. writing of Daniel because then God would be God and the Bible would be real divine truth. I will remind you because I have already said it. The idea that someone forged this in the 2nd century B.C. and somehow, somehow slipped it into the existing Hebrew Scriptures and, and nobody raised an alarm and nobody wrote anything down no sect of Jews broke off and said, that's not right. 
No one said anything. Somehow they just slipped it in there. And everybody was like, okay, yeah, sure, we'll throw this in and pretend that it was from, 600, from 400 years ago. That is absurd. The, the, that is absurd. The Israelites took the word of God seriously. They went to war with the Greek empire over the word of God. They went to war later on with the Roman empire over the word of God. They took their understanding of the word of God seriously. They're not just slipping things in willy-nilly. The only reason to believe that is because the consequences of accepting the book of Daniel is acknowledging God and the Bible as his word. Men and women have always been willing to blind themselves to the truth in order to avoid that uncomfortable reality that God is God and the Bible is his word. We could say much more, but that is part one. Part two, the interpretation. Okay, let's begin reading verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. The word image, same word in the Bible used for the word idol, okay? Because idols were often represented by statues, but here it just means a huge statue, a huge, wonderfully crafted statue. I imagine something taller than buildings, since what will ultimately destroy it is depicted somewhere in scope to the size of a mountain, I visualize in my head something the size of like a Washington monument where you stand at the bottom and you look up at it. I don't know how big it was in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but it is impressive. And Nebuchadnezzar sees this thing and he is filled with terror. The word awesome in the text is better translated as terrifying. We saw that earlier in the chapter. That fits the account of chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar was so troubled he couldn't sleep. And yet, as huge and as looming as this statue is, as magnificent as the statue is, what's ultimately troubling Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, is the fact that the whole thing gets destroyed. Cataclysmically so, it comes crumbling down. Verse 32, we get our first description. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet... Partly of iron, partly of clay. Just waiting now to see if Josh... There, he's on the spot. All right. Good job, Josh. We're working in conjunction with each other today. Marty's going to have a hard time taking out all these references to Josh in this. Uh... Just leave him in there, Marty. The internet can wonder who Josh is. <laughs> now, we're going to use some slides here to help us, as I've told you. And here you see the image of a man. That's what this is. It's a man. He's got a head, two arms, two legs, and feet. It's a man. Okay, he is crafted with various metals from head to toe. We are told gold, silver, bronze, culminating in iron with clay at the bottom. Verse 34, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. At this point, he's got Nebuchadnezzar's attention, right? Because no, none of the other wise men have gotten this far. You know, this is what he's seen in his dream. All right? Here we see a representation of this, sort of, again, this is some guy's artwork. I didn't draw this. I, would, I can't take credit for it. I just put the slides together, okay? Uh, the internet is a gracious place when it comes to stealing artwork from people. So uh, 
we see a representation of this. Our version doesn't look that terrifying. But in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the destruction of this marvelous huge statue is clearly divine. Um, it's clearly giving way to something otherworldly in that it says um, that the stone that destroys it is cut without human hands. So it's destroyed by a stone from God, not something that a human being has crafted. And this stone, then after destroying the statue, becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. Not a normal stone. Stones don't do that. Okay? All right, cool dream. What does it mean? Verse 37. You, O king, are king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory, and wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. All right, so we've got part one identified for us here. So we're told Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold in this statue. The head of gold represents him, not just him. It represents, verse 37 says, the kingdom that God has given Nebuchadnezzar. We also read that God has made Nebuchadnezzar king over the world. Now, that doesn't mean that every part of the world reports to him. After all, it says all the beasts have been given into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, and I don't think the lions and the tigers and the bears had any clue who Nebuchadnezzar was. That's not the point. There are people in the world who have not pledged their allegiance to Babylon, but there is no one who has the power to withstand Nebuchadnezzar. God has granted him supremacy in the earth. Um, no one on earth could challenge him because God was at work in Nebuchadnezzar's life. This is the purpose of the dream. Daniel's saying, you didn't simply promote yourself to this position. God has put you in this place and granted you a kingdom that has dominion over the earth. All right, Verse 39. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all of the earth. Now we begin to see what this statue is all about. As we work our way down from head to toe, we move from gold to silver to bronze. And if Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian empire are the golden part, the silver part is another kingdom that will come after Babylon. It will be inferior, it says, but I take that to mean in terms of splendor, just as silver is inferior to gold. Uh, and after that, there'll be another kingdom also inferior in terms of splendor, as bronze is inferior to silver. Not inferior in terms of scope. You see in verse 39, it clearly says these kingdoms shall rule over all the earth. So, not inferior in terms of size or influence, but in terms of splendor and magnificence. This, by the way, is exactly what happens after Babylon. The Medes and the Persians, in alliance, conquer Babylon, and the Medo-Persian Empire begins under Cyrus the Great. And you can see that on the slide that I've added. Then in 336 BC, again, we're a long way from when Daniel wrote this, Alexander the Great led the Greek peoples to conquer the Persians and the rest of the world. And so we have Greece under Alexander the Great there. Verse 40, the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. 
All right, Rome began to rise in the second century BC to true dominance. They were around as people grew before that as a city-state, but in the second century BC, they start to come to power, and they slowly crushed all of the Greek strongholds until 88 BC. This is not even 100 years before Jesus is born when they finally put down the last Greek revolt. In 27 BC, Caesar Augustus, probably heard of that guy, uh, made a conquest of the Greek peninsula, what was left of the Greek empire, uh, renaming it the Roman province of Achaia. You might remember the, 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 the provincial name of Achaia in the New Testament and the book of Acts. This was all done militarily. The first Roman legion formed in the second century BC and it was pretty much game over for the rest of the world after that. Verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Daniel spends more time interpreting the bottom of this statue than anything else in the dream. He just breezes through the first three parts, but when we get to this fourth kingdom, he has all that we have just read to say. For the feet and the toes are described as a mixture of clay and tile representing weakness, incredible weakness, Clay tile was, was beautiful. It was popular throughout Babylon. They decorated their city gates with this elaborate blue clay tile, but it was weak. It was fragile. And the iron and the legs is mixed with this clay tile at the very bottom of the statue. The part of the statue which you would want to be the strongest part, the base, is actually fragile. We're told that the kingdom of iron, which will be Rome, will be divided. That the military strength will remain, but in this division there will be weakness. Verse 42 clearly says the kingdom shall be partly strong, partly fragile. Notice it's still speaking of the bottom of the statue as the same kingdom as the iron found in the legs. It says the same kingdom. The kingdom will be. This is still the same. So if we have the iron legs that give way to iron and clay, the iron and clay is not a new kingdom. It's an extension of the previous one. Verse 43, there's this cryptic phrase here, which commentators have wrestled with for a long time. They wrestle with it because it's not clear. It's not going to be clear this morning. It's not going to be clear until it happens. But there's this cryptic phrase, as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now, history is clear about the demise of the Roman Empire. It was not conquered by a new world empire. Instead, something entirely different happens. Something new happens at the end of the Roman Empire. Whereas Babylon was conquered by, the, by Persia, Persia conquered by Greece, Greece conquered by Rome, no one conquered Rome. Rome lost battles. They lost all kinds of individual battles. The city was even sacked, but no new empire arose in its place, conquering all of Rome's territory, subjugating its people, assimilating their culture. Instead, Rome divided. It split first into east and west. You might have heard of the Holy Roman Empire. The, the city of Rome remaining in the west 
as the capital and the city of Constantinople becoming the capital in the east. This is happening gradually, hundreds of years after Jesus Christ uh, was crucified and rose from the grave. Then eventually, those kingdoms began to split into territories and countries which were renamed subsequently, and ultimately we would recognize today as countries that are still in the world. There was no great conqueror, no great, no, no great unification, no new world empire. So it's not difficult to see the division of the Roman Empire unfold. But verse 43, like I said, is very cryptic. We are not meant to understand, I think, this phrase in verse 43. I don't think we're meant to get it yet. We're told it because it's not entirely accomplished. Um, this is still unfolding. The phrase, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. I don't know for certain what that means. Frankly, no one does, whether they pretend to or not. I don't know what that means. Now, there have been suggestions. Some people think it could refer to democracy because you can't ignore the demise of kings and monarchies as the Roman Empire divided into the countries and the territories we know today. So mingling with the seed of men could be a reference to the inherent weakness that comes with the dependency upon the people instead of the unified strength of a particular king or monarch. Maybe that's it. Some people have suggested it's something spiritual and demonic that happens in the book of Revelation at the end of times. There certainly are demonic things happening in the book of Revelation at the end of times. That could be it too. Some have even suggested that it is something to do with genetics since the seed of men are mingled in this whole thing in this description here. And, and it sounds almost genetic-like and certainly there is plenty of genetic work being done today. There's no doubt about that, experimentation and research. But I'm being honest with you. I've read all the interpretations there are to offer. At least I think I have. There is no definitive answer. And yet what we're told, we're told for a reason. There will be a weakness in this uh, empire at the end. And this weakness uh, is going to be expressed with this mingling of the seed of man. God knows what it means. And when it's meant to be clear to the rest of the world, it will be clear to the rest of the world. Verse 44. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It's not going <laughs> to be a kingdom where, you know, the Romans are assimilated and the Greeks are assimilated and we embrace their gods with new names and we disperse their people. No, it's not going to be like that. It's not going to be like that. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Now, here we have some clues. Notice how verse 44 begins. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. I believe this is an indication that the feet and the toes of the statue, which represent this divided Roman Empire, will be a kingdom with more than one king. Kings, it says. In the plural, that's the language. And then at the end of the world, God will destroy all of these kingdoms. All of the governments, all the monarchies, the democracies, the forms of rule in the world, God will set up an eternal kingdom. Verse 44 calls it a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It says it shall stand forever. This is God's kingdom. More specifically, this is Jesus' kingdom. This is an eternal kingdom. This will happen at the return of Christ. 
So here's what your statue means, Nebuchadnezzar. You, king of Babylon, will give way to Persia, then to Greece, then to Rome, which will decay and divide into multiple kings and kingdoms, and then the kingdom of God on the earth will come. And we might add that the kingdom of God will come with Jesus ruling and reigning. Now you say, well, maybe I see that. Just stay tuned in the book of Daniel. It becomes more clear. This is the introduction in chapter 2. Just stay with me. Just keep coming back. Let's see if you're still saying, well, maybe that's what it means when we get to the end. You won't be saying that. Daniel concludes, the dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. Now, Jesus in Luke 21, it's actually in verse 24 of Luke 21, is speaking of the time when he will return and establish his kingdom on the earth. You know, Jesus has told his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. I am going to be crucified. I will rise again. He's told these things to his disciples. It's at the end of his earthly ministry. And they want to know when will the kingdom come? When will you establish your kingdom? And he's talking about that in Luke 21, verse 24. And he says, a lot of bad things are going to happen to Israel. I'm not going to read them all this morning. You can read them all. A lot of bad things are going to happen to Israel before the kingdom comes. And he says, Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We are in, right now, the times of the Gentiles described by Jesus. When Jesus returns, he will save Israel and set up his kingdom on the earth. We are Gentiles. These kingdoms are Gentile kingdoms. This is not the messianic kingdom up there. That's the stone. That's the mountain that's going to fill the whole earth. When will the messianic kingdom come? When will the kingdom of God come? Um, It's going to come. Um, Here's it coming. (laughs) I'm going to come with it. The times of the Gentiles. Listen to the word of God. This is Psalm 2, looking toward this future time. Now, Psalm 2 is written as if It's spoken to David, and yet you can tell from the language of Psalm 2, these things never happened to David, nor were they even possible to happen. You know, David is not going to live forever, but Psalm 2. Now, why would God speak messianic prophecy to David if he's really talking to Jesus? Well, who is Jesus? We should know this from the Redemption's timeline study we've been doing. Jesus is the son of David. It's to David that God makes the promise in 2 Samuel 7. That your seed after you, I will set up, and his kingdom will, will, will be an eternal kingdom you know, he will be my son and I will be his father. That's the word of God in 2 Samuel, promising that to David. So in Psalm 2, we have this word from God. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. We know this from Philippians 2, right? What it says about Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Psalm 2, this is looking toward that Ask of me. Remember how that whole passage begins in Philippians 2? Because Jesus went to the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So so Jesus has earned what he has in this kingdom. Ask of me, I will give you the inheritance of the nations. This is Psalm 2.8. The ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them, the nations, With a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. I find that interesting there. You know, what's a potter's vessel made of? Clay. You'll dash these, all these forms. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. We're talking about kings in Daniel 2. 
in the time of these kings. Be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. He's not talking about David. He's not talking about David. Blessed are all those who trust in Him. He's talking about the Messiah. When Jesus Christ returns, he will break the Gentile rulers, governments, and kingdoms. We see a depiction of that in this rock hurled at the statue that completely breaks apart all of the ornate structure, governments. It says like chaff that's blown away in the wind. God's kingdom will be something else. God will dwell with man in the person of Jesus Christ. When that happens in the book of Revelation, it is celebrated with the text that I read at the beginning of our service. It is celebrated when, when this happens to this statue, when, when Jesus Christ returns, it is celebrated in heaven. Revelation 11, they celebrate Christ's kingdom coming to the earth. The seventh angel sounded, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the line, Handel puts into the hallelujah chorus. Uh, You've heard the choir sing that before if you have been here for any length of time, haven't you? The kingdoms of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ. And the men thunder and they say, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 11 is looking at this statue unfolding in fulfilled prophecy as Jesus Christ comes to rule and reign on the earth. And they are celebrating. They are rejoicing. God is putting an end to sin and to evil and to corruption and to abuse. And he is putting on the throne of David a Messiah who will rule and reign forever. It says in verse 16, And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and they worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged. Are you prepared to be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ? That you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great and should destroy those who destroy the earth. This is part two of this sermon, the interpretation of these things. Now the closing part, part three. The God of the Gentiles. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 46 of Daniel chapter two. We're gonna read. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel. The man can sleep again. (laughs) Relief. Awe. What would cause a king to do this kind of thing? Desperation relieved. That's what would cause a king to do this kind of thing. That's about it. Prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. It's like worshiping Daniel as if Daniel was a god. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. That's a quick promotion from training to at the top. 
Verse 49, also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do to deserve such a, such a high reward? They prayed. How much do you value prayer? They prayed. Did they come up with a great interpretation? Did they come up with a great dream? Did they come up with a great plan? Did they go talk before Nebuchadnezzar? Absolutely not. They gathered with Daniel and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. Someone tells you they're praying for you, this is how you should think of them. This is how Daniel thinks of these three guys. Nebuchadnezzar is relieved. His soul is relieved. Not only has Daniel told him what his dream was, but he has explained it in a way that rings true and right to the feelings that he felt as his, troll, as his soul is troubled over this dream for many, many nights. He praises God. He promotes and rewards Daniel, who in turn petitions the king uh, to reward his faithful friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I am reminded of the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, who asks... Is God the God of the Jews only or also of the Gentiles? Nebuchadnezzar is a Gentile and he knows that in this dream and in this interpretation he has encountered the living God. The living God. He knows it. He meets a God through Daniel who would speak to him, a Gentile, because our God is not merely the God of an ethnic group but of all peoples. And all peoples will give an account to him and all peoples will face eternal damnation in hell or eternal life in his kingdom. There is no reason for the God of Israel to have survived the Babylonian Empire if he were merely a false god. I speak this plainly to you. Other gods of other peoples conquered by the Babylonians did not survive. There is no reason for the God of Israel to have then survived the Persian Empire. Other gods of other peoples conquered by the Persians did not survive. You don't have a count of those. They didn't make it. There is no reason for the God of Israel to have survived the Greek Empire. Other gods of other peoples subjugated by the Greeks did not survive. There is no reason for the God of Israel to have survived the Roman Empire. Other gods of other peoples did not survive. The closest thing you have are the Greek gods whom they all renamed and gave new temples for. They didn't survive as they were. Do you walk down the streets of New Paris and see the temple of Zeus? Do you drive to Richmond to worship Marduk, the Babylonian chief god? Run across the temple to Baal lately? But in each of these Gentile empires, the word of our God, the knowledge of our God, the people of our God, have persisted and overcome spiritual darkness. There is no other God like ours. We serve a living God, a God who revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar and changed the man's life. There'll be more on that to come. A God who reveals himself to Cyrus the Great, so much so that under the Persian Empire, the Persians bankroll the reconstruction of Jerusalem. They pay for the Jews to go back and rebuild it. A God who reveals himself to Alexander the Great so that Jerusalem was allowed to continue under Alexander's rule as an autonomous state, something Alexander the Great did not afford the other conquered peoples. A God who revealed himself at the height of the Roman Empire through the person of Jesus Christ and a God who is worshipped today across the globe. Our God is the living God of the Jew and the Gentile. 
But what you need to ask yourself this morning is when God's kingdom comes, will I be welcomed into it or will I be cast into outer darkness where there is much weeping and gnashing of teeth? We have seen this morning God's promise. He will bring his kingdom. But do you have a place in it? Jesus came to this earth and if you read the gospels, he is preaching the kingdom preaching the kingdom. That's why his disciples are asking him at the end of the Gospels, when will the kingdom come? He's been preaching about this for three years. And he says this in John 3. This is from our Wednesday night Bible study, which I would commend to you. John 3, verse 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's Jesus' opening line to Nicodemus the Pharisee you don't get into God's kingdom for being a good person you don't get into God's kingdom for giving your life to a good cause you don't get into God's kingdom your own way however you define it I hear people say stuff like that oh God and I we have an arrangement no you don't no you don't you get into God's kingdom God's way and in fact Jesus says in John 14 6 I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me Jesus says in order to get into God's kingdom you must be born again well what, what, does, what does that mean to be born again Jesus answers in the same chapter this is John three sixteen, which is familiar to you for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world the world is already condemned but he sent his son into the world so that the world through him might be saved today if you will not Harden your heart if you will look at the cross of Jesus Christ and see a Savior who has borne the judgment of your sin on his shoulders, uniquely qualified, the only righteous, the only truly righteous man to live. Thus uniquely qualified to stand in your place and to pay for your sin. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved. You may inherit eternal life. You can have a place in the kingdom of God. As I Prepare for this this morning. The song that kept coming to my mind is Jesus paid it all. I can't take myself into heaven. I can't make up for what I've done wrong. I can't deal with my own guilt in a way that is satisfying to me and God. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. I didn't wash it white as snow with all of my good deeds, all of my good efforts. He washed it white as snow. Whatever good follows that process of salvation is the work of God in my life to His glory. But salvation doesn't come because I worked my way up to it. The third verse of that song, For nothing good have I, nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. There's nothing good in me I deserve God's grace. I deserve what God would give me. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white by being a good person. Nope. By going to church every Sunday. Nope. By leaving an inheritance to a great institution. 
I'm sorry, Mr. Gates, but no. I will wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all. Here's the Christian. So all to him I owe. You hear Romans 12 in that. Present yourself a living sacrifice. It is your reasonable service. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Have you experienced that? Are you free from sin and guilt and shame? Are you free? You may be. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Father, let this not just be a waste of time or a suffered through lecture on ancient peoples. Work in the hearts of men and women to both remind them of the gospel for those who are saved and convict them of sin and bring them into your kingdom for those who are not. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.